Uh, For now, I reckon let's have a look at the passage. Uh, There's an outline there if you'd like to take notes. Otherwise, sit back, grab your Bibles uh, and enjoy uh, and be edified. Uh, So let's begin. One of the things that I find most frustrating about Jesus is that you can't put him in a box. Tried to put my nine-month-old daughter in a box the other day. She did not like it. Um, I didn't take a picture because I thought that would be cruel. Uh, but the thing that I was really surprised, this is the first time I've seen Christ's likeness in her because Jesus doesn't like being put in boxes either. As we read Mark Uncover as with our friends, as we read Mark's Gospel in PM, as we do it in small groups, one of the things that I hope you've seen is that Jesus intentionally goes out of his way to confound our expectations. Just when we think we've got a beat on him and we've got him worked out, he does something that we just don't expect and he won't get in the box. Now, this happens to all of us, uh, but the group of people that it happens to the most was a group of people called the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees you would have come across if you're in a small group. uh, We've seen them before at public meeting. These guys were the religious elite of Israel during Jesus' day. They were the most holy, most devout, most godly Jews of their community. And so if you wanted a picture of what it looked like to be a godly Israelite, then these were the guys. And so you would think that if anybody had an accurate picture of what the promised Messiah of God would look like, then it would be them, right? But as we read through Mark's gospel, what we see is them asking question after question because Jesus will just not fit in the box that they think that he should fit in. And they ask him a whole bunch of questions. Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why don't you fast? Why do you do work on the Sabbath? Why are you healing on the Sabbath? And when we get to today's chapter in chapter 7 of Mark, we hear another question which actually seems really strange. Jesus, why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat? That sounds like a small question. Sounds like a petty question. But the question, if I could mix my metaphors, is so significant that it opens up a Pandora's box on two particular critical issues. And just a heads up, this isn't a passage that's in the Mark Uncover reading program. There's nine passages. This isn't one of them. But the issues that it raises are so significant that we wanted you to be aware of them just in case the person that you're reading with needs to hear what Jesus has to say here. Because Jesus' responses to the question, they reveal something to us about how we worship God and how we can get it wrong. And of course, that matters, right? Because if we want to approach God and be accepted by him, then we need to know the right way to do it. So today, it's pretty simple. Uh, We're going to have a closer look at the question the Pharisees ask. And then we're going to look at two different responses that Jesus gives to two different groups of people in response to the question. And we're going to let that reshape some of our thinking. So that's where we're heading today. Uh, And it's all there on the outline if you get lost. So let's jump in. We're at point one, the Pharisees' question. Uh, If you've got your Bibles, now's the time to grab them. Let's start off in verse one. And this is what it says. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now, important to realise at this point, this isn't a matter of hygiene, okay? These aren't COVID times, hand sand hasn't been invented yet. What we're talking about here when we talk about defiled hands is ritual cleanness. This is a religious issue that they have. And we see that as we keep reading in verse 3. 
we see that the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash and they observe many other traditions. And that's a key word for us. We'll come back to that, such as the washing of cups, pitchers and kettles. Now, I want you to notice there at the beginning of verse three, it says the Pharisees and all the Jews. So basically, this isn't something like a small group of OCD holy men are doing off in the corner, just kind of scrubbing their hands. This is a universal set of behaviours that has come to characterise the Jewish community. And so when Jesus' disciples don't wash their hands, it's kind of like not wearing a mask during COVID. You know that one rebel that kind of turns up at the train station or at the airport and everyone's given like the dirty looks, right? They're the ones that stand out. And this is what's happening here with the disciples. And so the Pharisees, they, they ask what at least it seems on the surface is a reasonable question. They say there in verse 5, Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? And what we see then is that from the rest of this point in the passage, Jesus responds to that question. And he does it in two different ways to two different sets of people. And one of the things you may notice as we work our way through is that he never actually answers the question, at least not explicitly, because Jesus doesn't fit in a box. So let's have a look. The first response is made to the Pharisees, and it's there in verse 6 to verse 13. And essentially what he tells them is this, you're all a bunch of raging hypocrites. That's Jesus' answer to their question. Why would he say that? We'll have a look there at verse 6. He says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, As it is written, and here he quotes from Isaiah in chapter 29, verse 13. He says, These people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. And then he sums up there in verse 8. And I think this is the summary verse for this section, the thing that we need to pay attention to. He tells them, You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. See, Jesus is angry here, and it's not hard to see why, because the very thing that outwardly looks pious, outwardly looks holy, outwardly looks God-fearing, is the very thing that has caused them to disobey God rather than obey him. They have, verse 8, ignored the commands of God, and instead they've replaced them with human traditions, teachings that are merely man-made rules. Now, in this particular case, we're talking about ceremonial washings of the hands, of the kettles, of the pots, of the dining couches, what have you. And I want you to notice, particularly in those first couple of verses of chapter 7, that the repetition of tradition kind of just kind of rolls all the way through. Because the one thing that Mark wants us to understand is that the washings are not a command of God. If you search through the law in the Old Testament, in Exodus and Leviticus, you will not find this commanded anywhere. The priests at certain points are commanded to wash. You see that in Exodus 30 and Exodus 40. And and so are the Israelites when they touch bodily discharges. That's kind of gross. If you want to go and look up that, you can go to Leviticus 15. But beyond those things, references to washings, especially to the extent that the Pharisees are going on about, it's just not there. And so what happened over time is that that concept of clean and unclean, which is in the Old Testament, which is a legitimate concept, a concept that was designed to teach Israel that if they were to approach God, they needed his cleansing to do so. That concept, the Pharisees came along, the elders and their traditions, and they expanded it out and they particularized it. 
And they made a whole set of traditions around the law of God as a means to help them keep that law and obey it. Uh, Kind of think of the traditions as as like a fence, um, a fence that you kind of put around the law to stop you from getting even close to breaking the commands that it tells you not to do. Uh, Maybe a modern equivalent would be uh, of a fence, maybe driving under the speed limit. Don't know whether you guys do this. Pretty sure my mum does this. You, You don't want to break the law. So what you decide to do is, regardless of what the speed limit is, you decide to drive 10 k's under the limit. That's your fence right that causes a lot of ungodliness in other people uh, but maybe it helps you stay godly because if you sit right on the limit then you can always accidentally without thinking just kind of push down on the accelerator bam you've broken the law right and because we take the law seriously we don't want to do that Uh, but it's not as if going the speed limit is a bad thing right we're all on board with that heck if you want to you can you can be morally free and live dangerously and you can sit right on 80 and just see how that one goes you're free to do it But you're also free to impose a self-restriction that ensures that you never come even close to breaking that law. That's a fence. And I think in principle, that sort of idea, not a bad idea. Maybe speeding's not your thing. Uh, Maybe it's pornography. So you put a filter on your computer. That's fine. What you're doing is you're putting a fence around things to stop you from getting even close to disobeying God. It's just boundaries. That's good Christian wisdom. And presumably when the elders started doing this centuries before Jesus, it was motivated by that precise reason. They loved God. They didn't want to break his commands. And so what ends up happening is this. So let's have a look at this one. Um, This is God's law. It's the box. Oops. I don't know what just happened there. Cool. Um, And this is the box of the things that we shall not do. But everything else around is acceptable behavior. And what the elders seem to have come in and done is they've, they've made a set of traditions uh, and they've put that fence around God's law to prevent them from going near it. So you've got the law, the things you can't do, everything else is acceptable behaviour. And what we're going to do is we're going to decide not to go into that fenced area. It's not as if we can't go in there. We can. There's a tick there. It's acceptable behaviour. But we're not going to for fear of getting near the box marked with an X. But what happens over time is this, as the traditions are adhered to generation to generation, the tick inside that fence becomes a cross. And the boundary changes and it moves and it hardens. And now it's not a sincere self-imposed boundary to help somebody obey God. Now it's a boundary that can't be transgressed because to cross it, to cross it is sin. Now, do you see the subtle difference there? But that difference has massive implications because look at that diagram in the middle how many sources of authority are there now in the diagram it's not just one you've got the authority of god god's commands but there's actually two because now we have the authority of the tradition of the elders and i want to say that's a problem because question for you what happens when those two authorities contradict you've got to choose don't you And it's very possible, and this passage tells us that it can be done, to choose wrong. In fact, this is the the problem that formal Roman Catholic teaching has. Over time, they've taken the scriptures, but they've also built around it a whole set of traditions based on papal authority and the magisterium. And when we get to certain points of, um, of godliness, of holiness, certain points of understanding of theology, we actually have two authorities in the ring, both sitting next to each other, and we have to make a choice. We have to choose which one we will actually consider to be the one that steers the ship. Will it be the commands of God or will it be the traditions of man? 
And what Jesus is saying here in the Pharisees' case is that they have chosen the traditions of man. And you see it there in verse 9. He says to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honour your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Now, now quick explanation here. The practice of Corban was essentially gifts to the temple. It was sort of like leaving something to the church in your will. And, and what the Pharisees would do is they'd say this. They'd say, oh, that, that shiny, expensive vase that I own or that beautiful tapestry that I've got in the lounge room. Well, well that's Corban. That's devoted to God. I'm, I'm giving that to the temple. And they'd hold on to it, but by devoting it to God, it now becomes in a position where it cannot be used for any other thing. So all other human use is put off to the side. And so what would happen is when the family came into need, your mother and father stopped working and they kind of need some money for medication or or whatever the case may be, maybe they don't have money for rent. The Pharisee could go, well, look, mum, dad, I'd really like to help you. But that, that tapestry that I could have sold to give you the money to kind of keep you alive, well, it's devoted to God. Sorry can't touch it and so what ends up happening is this this is our final diagram here they elevate traditions and they encourage the obedience to those such that they actually say well you know god's law where it says you shouldn't do that thing well actually yeah you can go ahead and do it and so in this particular example jesus gives they stop honoring their father and their mother the pharisees then tell the jewish people uphold our tradition And if you do that, well, you you can sort of break God's law. There's the loophole. And the result of all of this, and the thing that's really terrifying, I think, is what Jesus says when he quotes Isaiah in verse 7. If you do this, your worship is in vain. Now, remember, these are the most outwardly religious members of their society. Their entire life was a self-disciplined commitment to upholding the traditions that they kind of perceived that appeared to honour God. And even though these guys were raging hypocrites, you've got to let Jesus' accusation shock you like it would have shocked them back then. Because these are the people who are least likely to be accused of vain worship. And what that tells us is that for us ourselves, as we consider our own traditions, there is a distinct possibility that the things that we do that look outwardly pious and God-honoring and God-fearing, those things could be offensive and vain rather than acceptable to God. And it's because I think every Christian community has traditions, things that by definition are extra biblical, that we have thoughtfully or unthoughtfully decided if we do this thing, if we commit to this practice, it will shape the way that we obey God's commands and enable us to obey them. There might be different ways of praying, different ways of singing, the particulars of how we meet, what we wear, what we eat, whether we do liturgy or whether we want to be more authentic and just kind of off the cuff, whether we dip or whether we sprinkle or whether we dunk when we baptise. In a room this size with this many people from so many different church traditions across WA, we will have a whole bunch of different ways of doing things. And the thing to get is that whatever we choose, no matter how well or how poorly it is thought out, we all have them. If you don't think that your church doesn't have a tradition, well, I don't think that's possible because every church has a liturgy. Every church has a set way of doing things. Otherwise, you would turn up to church this coming Sunday and you wouldn't recognise what the heck was going on. Even the CU has traditions. I don't know whether you've noticed this, but what, what do we have? We, we have announcements. 
We have prayers. We have a Bible reading. We have a Bible talk. What are the things we don't have? We don't have singing. We don't recite the creeds. It probably jars a lot of you. We don't wave flags, right? And the CU has reasons for those things, why we do and don't do certain things. And if you don't like those reasons, go for it. We can change them. Run for committee and see how you go, right? (laughs) Sneaky announcement right in there, right? But the thing to get is that none of those things are gospel. And the moment that we think that they're gospel is the moment that we have elevated the traditions of man to a point and given them an authority that they cannot and should not have. And that's the warning of these verses. Because some things might be helpful. But if we move from a thoughtful preference about what we think will enable godliness in our Christian community all the way to a dogmatic stance that says my way, our way is the right way, the best way, the only way, that's when we make the mistake that the Pharisees make. Now, let me future proof here, okay? Because I think the one that will sneak up on us is singing. Now, it might be a bit contentious, and I'm probably opening a can of worms here, but as we all know, every generation has a particular style of music that helps them worship God. And it seems to me that when you hit 50 and 60, there's a switch inside your spiritual being that is flipped, and all of a sudden, all the new stuff these young Christians are singing is just trash. You heard that before? I've certainly been in some of those conversations. Now, in fairness to them, some of their critiques are valid. Some of the modern music is just completely anemic, completely devoid of gospel truth. And yes, some of their clunky, unsingable hymns are so rich with God's truth that you just have to look at it once and you become a Christian. But the danger that we got into... Hey, have you you seen some of those hymns? They are phenomenal in what they do in tracing the gospel. Much, much better than Jesus, Jesus, oh yeah, Jesus, I love you. Doesn't mean all modern songs are like that. There are some fantastic ones out there. But here's our danger. The danger is that in 30, 40 years' time, you'll become the old person and you'll settle into tradition thinking and start thinking that the type of music that you grew up with is the best and, in fact, the only means of honouring God and getting in touch with your affections and, and, and being genuine towards God. And you'll do that instead of just articulating why it is that you as a community have decided that in this context, at this time, this is the way you're going to do things because you think it'll help you obey God. We must never lose sight of the why, the why that we do things. Because as soon as we do what happens, we end up in the middle. Our boundaries harden. And instead of being a help to godliness, our traditions actually become a threat to godliness. So that's the Pharisees and Jesus' first response. The second response goes in a completely different direction. And we see it in verses 14 to 23. Jesus, he takes the same behaviour, the ritual washing of hands, and then he identifies a different problem in a different group of people. And we see it there in verse 14. He calls the crowds to him. It's sort of like a Jesus encore, like I'm done with the Pharisees, guys. Let's bring on the next lot. And he says to them this in verse 14. Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. Now, he's clearly riffing off the Pharisees' original question here, washing hands before you eat. But the concern of the Pharisees, and of all the Jews, in fact, was that if they ate unclean things 
or if they ate things in an unclean way, they themselves would be made unclean and therefore they'd be unacceptable to God. And what Jesus says, he comes in, he says, actually, guys, that's, that's not true. Nothing outside of a person, this is verse 15, can defile them by going into them. Rather, it's what comes out of a person that defiles them. He flips things. Now, of course, there's a really interesting question there about what does Jesus actually mean when he says what comes out of a person? Is he talking about like the food out the other end? What's actually going on here? But we find out a little bit later there in verse 17 what he means. Because after he's left the crowd and he enters the house, he gives the disciples their their traditional and usual private masterclass. His disciples ask them about the parable and true to form, this is a liturgy of Jesus and the disciples. Jesus begins by saying, are you so dull? And then he says, don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them for, so here's his reason, there's the four in verse 19, for it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. Now that's interesting. The defilement has to do with what goes into our heart and not into our stomach. Because if it goes into the stomach, it goes through the mouth and then through the stomach and it comes out the body. And this, by the way, I find this really interesting. You don't see this in translation, but this is one of the two times that the word toilet turns up in the Greek Bible. I don't know why they didn't translate it. Maybe there's kind of a sense of decorum. But basically, Jesus is saying it goes in, it comes out in the toilet, it's done. It doesn't defile you. He's actually talking here about an entirely different system. He's not talking medically here. He's not like talking like the digestive system, but you've got to really worry about the circular system, cir- circulatory system. Med kids, help me out here. I still, I still have never worked out what an endocrine system is, but it just sounds awesome, right? <laughs> and so what Jesus is talking about here is, is not medical, but he's trying to kind of say there is actually a completely different sphere in which cleanness and uncleanness operates. And it's not the food that we eat, which is why we have that little comment in parentheses there where it says, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Now, let's sit in that for a moment Uh, because I know that there are certain brands of Christianity that say that we need to obey the Old Testament food laws. And that was certainly the case and a point of contention in the first century, right? Because the Jews were becoming Christians and then the Gentiles were becoming Christians. And the Jews had food hang-ups from the Old Testament that the Gentiles simply didn't have. And so there was this tension. And one of the things that the Apostle Paul kind of made great pains to show them at various points in, in all of his letters was that food is not the thing that makes you unclean. And this is his reason why. Jesus is saying that uncleanliness and cleanliness is actually a matter of the heart, not of the stomach. And so what that means is you can eat what you want. Praise God for the new covenant because now we have bacon, right? We know we're in the last days and Jesus has arrived. But that is actually an aside. What is Jesus actually driving at here? It's always worth making an aside about bacon, isn't it? What is he driving at? He's driving at something far more profound and something that we often misunderstand as Christians. What does he say? We'll have a look there in verse 20, and this is where things get a bit real for us, so let's lower the tone. He explains what he means, and he says this. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, greed... Malice, deceit, there's a lot in this heart, isn't there? It just keeps going. Lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, 
and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Now notice a few things about those verses. First of all, that's a lot of things coming out of a human heart, right? That's an incredible list of evil. And every single one of them defiles the person. Second thing, they're not put in the heart from the outside. It's as if they've been birthed there. That's where they come from. That's where they originate. They come from out of our hearts. We weren't made that way. It's not that we were naturally good and then society or family influence came along or disadvantage or whatever else it was and it corrupted us. These things naturally arise from within me. And understanding this, I think, is really key because as you read Mark Uncover with your non-Christian friends, this is something that you really want to land with them. Because what do people normally think about their moral standing before God? I think most of us think that we're fundamentally good. Yeah, we do a few bad things. We've got to fix that up. Sometimes we fail to meet our standards. Yeah, I can point to the three different things that I did last week where I was bad. But generally speaking, I'm a good person. I was born good. And this sort of thinking is kind of a hangover from the Enlightenment back in the 1700s. Prior to that, it was actually pretty widely accepted that base human nature was morally corrupt. This is actually a new idea because as we got rid of God and we elevated the place of mankind and reason in a similar way that the Pharisees did with their traditions, we flipped everything. And the source of our corruption was all of a sudden not the inside, but the outside. It was in society and institutions and experiences, things that happened to us and warped us and made us bad. And so what that means today is that when we confront people with their sin, when you consider your own sin, we just tend to think that it's a surface level issue. Because, you know, then what happens? We think that we're fundamentally good, right? And the way that we present ourselves before God then in an acceptable way and the way that we can approach him is just to cleanse off those bits and pieces on what's actually just ordinarily just a really nice, white, bright, clean garment. So basically it just becomes about behavior management. If we're fundamentally good, then we just need to stop doing some of those evil things. But what Jesus is telling us here is that our cleanliness issue is far deeper than just trying to manage a set of behaviours. Because no amount of behaviour management can change the fact that before God, our hearts are evil. And within them dwell things like sexual immorality, theft and murder and adultery and greed and malice and deceit. And we could continue to recite the list, but you get the point, right? As you think about it in your own life, all you're doing is ticking the box and saying, yeah, that's me, yeah, that's me, yeah, that's me. And it's not as if we even have to have done any of these things. I mean, adultery, for example, it's not necessarily something that you need to have committed for it to be in your heart and emerge from it. I mean, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5 that even if you look at somebody lustfully, you're guilty of adultery. Some of them are much more easier to place than that, though, because how many of us can ever say that we've never been greedy? How many of us can say that we've never lied? How many of us can say that we've never been malicious and actually wanted ill fortune to come upon somebody that we didn't like? We've been envious We've been lewd and laughed and told dirty jokes. We've been slanderous. We've been arrogant and thought that we were better than other people. We've been foolish because we ignored God's commands and instead decided to follow our own way. Now, what Jesus is saying is that we are not fundamentally good people. We are fundamentally evil people. And it only takes us a second, a moment of reflection to realise that that is true. 
And when we understand that, and we understand just how deeply corrupted and despicable and unclean we are in the sight of God, then we realise that no amount of outward behaviour changing, ceremonial washings, rituals, bells and smells, Bible reading, whatever you want to throw into that mix, none of that can fix our problem. Because all of those things deal with the externals. All of those things deal with the symptoms rather than the disease. No, the defilement, it comes from within. And what that means is that we need heart surgery. Now, you might have heard it put like this. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And we can't change our hearts. But that's why Jesus came. That's why he tells us that this is our problem. That's why he takes the opportunity to call the crowds towards him. Because if they misunderstand this, then they will misunderstand the good news that he brings. Because who can change the heart? Who can take a heart that is defiled and make it clean, a heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh? Who can cleanse us from the inside out? Well, it's Jesus, isn't it? He is the one who can do the cleansing. He is the one who died on the cross and shed his blood that we might be cleansed. Because that's how you are truly cleansed. That's what the Old Testament teaches us. It wasn't ceremonial washing. It was blood. Now, I don't know whether you know this, but the Day of Atonement, Leviticus chapter 16, was a, a yearly ordinance from God. And, and all the people would stop working and all the priests would kind of get their sacrifice on and they'd just go into the, the tabernacle and they'd sacrifice a bunch of animals and they would scatter blood everywhere, all over the altar and cleansing it, making atonement for it. They'd get blood all over themselves and so they'd have to take off their robes and get changed before they went out of the Holy of Holies and sacrifice a whole bunch more animals. It was disgusting. It would have smelt heaps, heaps crazy. And yet in that moment, what God is saying is that in that moment, your sins are atoned for. You have been cleansed and you have been made pure. And the dissonance of that picture, because it is dissonant, isn't it? That, that the dissonance of that picture is supposed to make us realize that the blood, the stinky, the, the sticky, the disgusting thing that's covering everything and it's all over us. That's the thing that cleanses us. And removes the sin from within us. And we see it, I think, in the book of Hebrews more clearly than anywhere else. That it is Jesus' blood that is the blood that cleanses us from all sin. And this is what it says here. Just let me read this out to you. You don't have to go here in your Bibles. This is Hebrews 9, verse 13. He does a compare the pair. He starts with the Old Testament system and he says, The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Because that is what Jesus does. He doesn't just deal with the outward. He cleanses us to the very heart. And the challenge for us as we finish today is to consider just what it is that Jesus is saying to us. Because do you think that your problem is purely superficial and outward? A couple of behaviours to kind of get rid of. A couple of behaviours that perhaps even God can just ignore. Or do you think that the problem that you have is your heart? Have you been deceived into thinking that there is some form of behavior management? I don't know what it is. Maybe it's penance and confession. Maybe it's the daily Bible reading and prayer, whatever it is, that in some ritualistic fashion, you can somehow cleanse yourself and be acceptable to God. 
And I just want to say this is so important if you are not a Christian, because those things will not cleanse you. You need Jesus. And if you're a Christian, don't make the mistake of thinking that, you know, once you've been cleansed by Jesus, then you stay clean by doing those things. Because that's not how it works. You are clean. Your heart of evil, even though you still have sinful desires that you need to fight to your dying breath until Jesus returns, that heart of evil has been cleansed once for all by the blood of Jesus. That's what Jesus is driving at when he talks to the crowds. So where have we come? Well, let's have a quick recap. The Pharisees asked a seemingly innocent question. Because of what we know of them, we know that question was intended to kind of accuse and trap Jesus. But Jesus takes it as an opportunity to tell us two things. First of all, he calls out the hypocrisy of those who think traditions can substitute the commands of God. And he wants us to be careful about the fences that we put up. Because however well-meaning they might be, it is entirely possible, as in the case of the Pharisees, that we will become so preoccupied by them that we will offer God something that is not worship but lip service, and it will be in vain. And it won't just be us as Pharisees doing it. We'll be leading others into error too. I was talking to someone quite recently who went through a cult-like church who got this wrong, and he is wrestling with this, and he is not a Christian anymore because of what he saw He saw lip service, he saw legalism, he didn't see a genuine love of God. Their worship was in vain and so his was as well. So we're playing with fire here. And second and finally, he addresses the crowds and he takes the question of hand washing and he points to the misunderstanding that sits underneath it. It's not the ceremonial washing of hands that cleanses us. Something far greater and deeper is required and that's the work and blood of Jesus.